Hi, listeners. I'm sure that most of you are hunkered down, doing your best to stay healthy in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Races have been canceled or postponed, leaving many of us unsure of what the next weeks and months will look like from a running perspective. Here on The Shakeout, we may not have as many events to cover, but there's no shortage of inspiring stories and voices to fill the airwaves. So for the foreseeable future, we'll be bringing you as many of these stories as we can to help keep you motivated as we await a return to normalcy. Here is one of those inspiring stories. Having three women make an Olympic team for the first time, I think is just going to be so fabulous. So I'm really thrilled to be part of this road running revolution. Welcome to the ShakeOut Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Van Buskirk. Two months ago, Melindy Elmore shattered the Canadian marathon record, running 2.24.50 in her second ever bid at the distance. 16 years ago, she made her first Olympic team in the 1500 meter. Now, the 40-year-old is poised to return to the Olympic stage in a vastly different event. This week, we talk with Melindy about balancing training, motherhood, and coaching, and about rediscovering her love of running. Melindy Elmore has had multiple athletic careers. The Kelowna native was first known as a standout mid-distance track runner. She was a five-time All-American for Stanford University, a multi-time Canadian champion in the 1500 meter, and competed in that event at the 2004 Athens Olympics. She still holds one of the fastest ever Canadian run times in the 1500, a blazing 402.64. But following Athens, a series of frustrating setbacks led Melindy to hang up her spikes in 2012 and retire from professional running for good. Or so she thought. In the years that followed, she ventured into the world of triathlon, channeling her competitive spirit into mega-distance multi-sport. She excelled finishing her first Ironman in the fourth fastest time ever posted by a Canadian woman. But the hours and energy required to train for the Ironman proved extremely challenging, especially as a coach and a new mother. As their family grew, Melindy and her husband, two-time Olympian Graham Hood, decided that it was time for a different challenge. Graham put together a marathon training plan, Melindy redirected her focus onto the roads, and in January 2019, she ran her first marathon in Houston in 2.32.15. Exactly one year later, on the same course, she smashed her PB and the Canadian record. I connected with Melindy at her home in Kelowna. So I want to start by talking about the most obvious reason to have you on the show right now, which is your most recent success at the Houston Marathon, where you obliterated the Canadian record by over two minutes. Can you start by just talking us through the actual race, um, where your head was at going in and how you felt during the race and how everything kind of played out? It was one of those races that I felt so well prepared for going into it that I I just kind of had a feeling it was going to go really well. You, you still get nerves, of course, but it was more like excitement, genuine excitement to, okay, I've put in all this work, like, let's go out there and see what I can do. And a sidebar of that is I never, I feel like you can't really force that level of confidence. It has to be something that just your, your body and your mind believe versus you trying to convince yourself that you're ready to do something. So I really felt to the core that I was ready to go and, and everything had clicked. So the Houston Marathon, it's my only marathon. Of course, I did it last year and this year. I feel like there's like 500 people in front of me for the first 5K. Like 
I'm, I'm rarely so far back in a, in a road race to have so many people up the road ahead of you and your vision is just really amazing. And so it takes honestly about a good solid five kilometers to even just get settled in off the line. It would be like in the 1500, like the first hundred when everyone rushes off the line and then they just kind of settle in around the corner, right? It takes 5k in a marathon. And in fact, I almost missed the first, my first bottle at 5k. And I had to give myself a bit of a wake up call, like, okay, you need to pay attention to fueling and hydration and not just go willy nilly missing bottle stations because you're still so excited from starting the race. Melindy went into Houston with the ambitious goal of running between 223 and 225. She had been told that the pacers for the elite women were planning to take the field out at 222 to 223. Feeling that this was a bit too rich, she planned to run her own race. But early on, the pacers were running slower than predicted, and she found herself in the lead pack of women. I, I didn't really understand why the pack was right there, but it was perfect for me. It was absolutely perfect. So I had been trying to run with Akini and Sam from uh, Quebec City because we just had met the day before and he had similar goals to me. So we were going to kind of try to work together. But he was a little bit ahead by that point, And I just figured I'd let him go. And I thought, well, this is my race here. These are the women I need to race against. So I'm just going to tuck into this group and um, and be patient. But I knew really early on too, by at least 10K, I was like, oh, I feel like I could do this all day. This This is really feeling really smooth and comfortable. And the previous year, I kind of hit a rough patch between about... 16k and 28k like a good 12 kilometers mostly because I was on my own into a pretty solid headwind so to be with people for this part of the race and to be feeling really comfortable and strong was really encouraging you know before I knew it we had about four kilometers left and, and the group had disintegrated and there were three of us left and it was like oh now it's race time okay finally finally we get to race and I, I ended up falling off of the two women in my little group by then. And I was kind of, I was still pretty happy with my run and I knew that I was going to run what I had hoped to run and that I was still going to finish strong and I was going to be on the Canadian record pace. But when I got to the half mile mark to go, I realized that I could actually catch the woman in third. And I thought to myself, well, you're going to regret it if you don't actually go for it now. So I had to kind of dig deep and channel my you know, 1500 meter kick. But um, I mean, I was so thrilled overall that that it felt good the whole time. So you said that you that going in, you thought you were in shape to run somewhere between 223 and 225, which is obviously well under the Canadian record. What indicators did you have leading into this race that that was in your wheelhouse? You'd only run one marathon before, and it had been a 232 the year before, which is an extraordinary debut, but it's certainly a far cry from a sub 225. What in your training indicated that you were capable of getting after that kind of pace on that day? Well, when I finished the race in 2019, my first marathon, you know, I was seven months postpartum and I had taken the best part of six or seven years off of running training. Of course, I did triathlon, so I was aerobically strong, but I hadn't run very much. So I knew that I had really not fully prepared for that race that, that we had left a lot of a lot of work kind of undone and that it was just sort of a rust buster and I finished that race feeling really strong and knowing that I had four or five minutes more within me with training and more mileage under my belt and just a year a solid year back of training so we kind of looked at that and said okay where can I be next fall and when the the Olympic criteria came out in the springtime last year and 
and with the 229.30 Olympic standard and the, the guaranteed spot on the Olympic team to the top Canadian in Toronto, it became really clear to me that Toronto was where we needed to focus through this spring and summer. So, you know, the, the fall went really well training wise, and we started to see towards the end of the build that um, my paces were really kind of solidifying around that 325 per kilometer, 326 per kilometer mark when I do long interval work, um, which kind of indicated that was about going to be my race pace for Toronto. However, with two big differences is that it was actually only the last two workouts, big workouts that we got to that level. I kind of went in thinking like 327, 328 would be my goal race pace. And then over the course of the build, it started to, like I said, kind of solidify a little bit lower. And that just felt like the right pace when I'd be doing my training runs. And like, this is what I feel like I could sustain for a long period of time. Unfortunately, just before Toronto, of course, I somehow tweaked my hamstring to the point where there was no way I could run on it. So I had to um, to withdraw the only week out. Um, but the great thing was that I only needed about a month to rehab it, but I was still able to maintain some running during that period. And as soon as I started up my training seriously again in December, my first workout was December 4th, I was right back to running 325, 324, 326, like in that range per kilometer for four by six kilometers with two or three minutes rest. And so it just from there on in, we knew that was my pace and all of my workouts were right in that pace range for, you know, 25 to 30 K worth of work. And that kind of gave us a really good indication that that was really what I should aim for. So, you know, the goal became less about running the Olympic standard and more, or even the, the record, to be honest. I wasn't focused on those things as much as how fast can I run? How can I execute a great race? How can I get the most out of myself? And I feel like that kind of frame that, that, that I was able to, to go into the race was less stressful and less pressure than you must run the Olympic standard. You must you know, get the Canadian record or whatever. It was just like, well, how fast can I run now today with what I've done? And obviously it, it was a pretty good indicator that, that that's where things ended up. You talked about that one key workout where you did four by six K. Are there any other sort of key or favorite workouts that you did leading up that really gave you some confidence or that uh, maybe put you in a place you hadn't been before? We aim for about four workouts in a build or five workouts that are really key sessions that are between 25, like I say, around 25 to 30 K worth of work at marathon pace, but they progress through the build. So we'll do things like five by five K, six by four K, six, five, four, three, two, one is one that I really like because I love cut downs, but the best workout that I did and it was super fun was, um, three by nine K in Victoria. We got a big group together of the local running community and Emily Setlack came over from Vancouver and Jim Finlayson took on a ton of pacing duties and Nick Walker jumped in it and Trent Stellingworth was on his bike. So the, anyways, I did three by nine K and, and so did Jim and then everyone else did a portion of that. And it was so much fun and we worked together really hard. So that was kind of like the key workout that was I think 16 days out from Houston, the last major one. And then, then we knew after that, yeah, we're, we're good to go. All systems, systems check, things are going to go well in a couple of weeks. What kind of weekly mileage do you hit, let's say, kind of in the thick of the build? So I hit a couple weeks of 100 to 105 miles, uh, you know, 166K to 170, but we don't always align them Monday to Sunday. They might be like Wednesday to Tuesday or whatever. So, of course, it never looks as impressive in Strava. 
just kidding. But so we did hit a few of those 100-ish mile weeks. And then I think my average was for the 12 weeks was around 90 miles, which was considerably higher than um, Houston the previous year, which was low 80s to peak of 90. Um, and I'd say Toronto and Houston builds. I call I count Toronto as a build because I got through the whole build. And, and in fact, it set me up really well for Houston, but they were pretty similar in term, in that kind of 100 mile mark. I find that at least at this point, much more than that, I start to get too tired and it's a trade-off for getting in the mileage versus getting in the rest that I need to execute the workouts properly. Mm-hmm. So I, I was curious about that. And you know, one of the things I think about is, of course, you've been away from the competitive running scene for a while, but during that time, you certainly weren't just sitting on your haunches. You took up uh, triathlon and in fact, I think debuted in a sub nine hour Ironman, which is extraordinary. So how how much do you think sort of the the work that you're doing now has maybe been bolstered or supplemented by the volume of training you were doing before, but also the fact that a lot of that would have been cross training in the form of swimming and uh, biking. Oh yeah, absolutely. I kind of consider that I've had three, you know, chapters to my athletic career so far and the track stuff of, you know, 20 years, I basically put in on the track, super important mentally, physically, physiologically, emotionally, having gone through that first phase and then switching gears completely into triathlon I don't think I'd be where I am today in the marathon without having gone through that experience and that training. And not to say that everyone needs to do it because lots of people are successful without it. But for one thing, I clearly needed a break from running and I needed new goals and I needed to refresh through pursuing something completely different from running. And the fact that I was you know, pretty new to swimming and new to cycling was exciting to me and challenging. And I really enjoyed the process of becoming a better athlete through those disciplines and we didn't do very much running during my triathlon career because I already could run well. And I was already, you know, I was already strong enough as a runner that I could run competitively off the bike without having to invest a lot of time and energy in the week into it. We had to focus my my training on the biking and the swimming to become better at those those sports. So I do, you know, six days a week of swimming, four to 5K a day when I finally built up to that kind of um, endurance. And it's really, really, really hard to swim that for a non-swimmer, someone who doesn't grow up doing competitive swimming. That's a lot of work. And then biking, you know, a two-hour bike ride is a short bike ride, doing four, five-hour bike rides with intervals and that sort of work. Both, I think, aerobically developed my system in a way that running would not have. I wouldn't have been able to do that number of hours. You can't you can't run 20 to 24 hours in a week. There's just you would just totally break down. So I was able to get in a lot more aerobic work. But then also I think psychologically I could go into the marathon and feel like it was a step down in distance and in demand on my body and suddenly doing the training or doing the runs was not nearly as daunting as if I'd gone from the 1500 right into the marathon. It was like, oh, okay, I'm only doing five by 5k today for, for running versus I'm doing like a hard five or six hours on my bike and then running an hour hard off of it. So this is kind of easy in comparison. So it was, I think it kind of helped my mindset as well. So that's funny. As a mid-distance track athlete, did you ever think you would hear yourself say, oh, I got to a point where the marathon just felt like a step down in distance. I know. Yeah. Well, I definitely know that as a 1500 meter runner, I thought that people who raced Ironman and raced marathons were crazy and there was no way I was ever doing it. And now I'm in it. And I'm like, 
maybe I am crazy, but I don't think I am. I think I just really love to do it. And I think that it's just, it takes a certain level of age and experience perhaps, or patience with yourself to get to the point where, where it's actually fun and rewarding to do that kind of work. Yeah, for sure. Well, and it sounds like this has been, and you, you've you've mentioned this with your husband, Graham, coaching you and being a big part of your support network, obviously. It sounds like it's been a real sort of family project. I think you've used those words before to describe this foray into marathon running. You've also talked in other interviews about finding more balance in your life. Um, you're a mother of two. You're a coach. You're a professional athlete. You have a lot going on. How do you find the balance of all those things? How, how, how does that play out for you? Well, you know, I think everyone has their, their recipe that kind of works for them. And I know when I was a track athlete, my best years were the years that I was doing my master's or um, a year that I was working part-time. And those were the years I was also running well. The years that I thought, oh, I'm going to go all into running and, you know, prioritize running and, and drop all these other things. I actually didn't run as well. So I think I'm someone that thrives off of being busier than maybe some people might. And it's almost like I get, I feel kind of lethargic and kind of get into a bit of a funk if I don't have other stuff going on to keep me energetic through the day. And I just also truly love being part of something that's more than just my own pursuit of running. So if I'm in parenting mode, I'm trying to be the best parent I can be. If I'm in coach mode, I'm trying to be the, the best coach I can be and, and put their needs first and not not worry about myself so much. So and then, you know, when I'm training, then it's also focused on training in a in a big way. So I think that the notion that a runner to be successful needs to full on commit to running and not have other things in their life is a bit of a misnomer, especially especially given that there's only so many hours in a week that you can actually run because of the load on your body that 10 or 12 hours of running is a fair amount there's a lot of hours left in the left in the week that you could be pretty productive and enjoy other things going on and of course as we said one of those things that you have to enjoy outside of running is coaching there's a really beautiful quote on your website that you where you say it takes a village to raise an athlete sometimes i'm the athlete and sometimes i am the village supporting the athlete and i think that's wonderful can you talk about how those two roles influence each other being both a coach and an athlete well yes and absolutely first of all i've been so fortunate to have had such amazing coaches in my life um right from you know playing soccer and playing other sports Growing up to my coach, Mike Van Tegum, who was my coach from grade eight, all the way through when I retired from track. And then he's still part of my coaching advisory team to this day. And he, I learned so much about just life from him outside of running and, and really look to him as a role model of how to be a good person. And, you know, I, I kind of would make decisions sometimes like, oh, is this something that Mike would be proud of in a way? Like, I want my coach to be proud of what I do, not just as a runner. And so I feel like I was really motivated and inspired by him as a coach and other coaches that I had. So I just felt like I had knowledge that I would like to share with the young athletes that I work with and to give back. But at the same time, I also get a lot from them. So they teach me how to be a better coach and to stop and listen and to try and you know work with different personality types and different goals. You know, I coached Taryn O'Neill for several years in high school, and I find her a super inspiring person. She's definitely had a lot of adversity in her life, and she would just come to track with kind of a fire in her eyes and would say, I'm going to do X, Y, Z, and she'd just get the work done. And I I just 
again, like learned a lot from her as well. And I think it goes both ways between a coach and an athlete and that it's not just about the coach giving to the athlete. The athlete also gives a lot to the coach. That's really beautiful. And of course, it's uh, especially, I think, as of late, we've really been wanting, there's been a real desire to hear stories, positive stories of great coach-athlete relationships. We're in an interesting moment right now with Canadian women's running. There's you know more depth and faster performances than we've seen really since the 80s. But we're also seeing more women feeling emboldened to speak out about the maltreatment that they've experienced in sport. What are your thoughts on some of the recent news in this sort of Me Too era that we're in right now in women's sport in Canada? Yeah, I mean, it is certainly a really serious conversation to have right now. First of all, like I said, I'm really fortunate that I've had pretty much positive experiences with coaches and teams and organizations throughout my career. And I can look back on that and think, wow, I was really, really fortunate because I didn't have some of those issues that are coming out. Secondly, I find it really quite shocking, as I'm sure a lot of people do, because I I feel like I'm not that old and that we knew better, like we should have known better 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, that this story continues to repeat itself and we know better. And, I, and I'm so baffled by the fact that it continues to persist because it's just wrong for one thing. And, and, and I'm not to say like that it, that it was excusable at all in the 60s or the 70s because it wasn't then either. But that was so much has changed and progressed since then. And yet it feels like it hasn't. So I, it's just, it's really shocking to me that these problems continue to persist at this level in sport and on levels, maybe not quite as serious as what are making the big media outlets. But I have, you know, grade 10, grade 11 girls who are quitting their other sports because of the pressure that their coaches are putting on them and the fact that they're not having fun going to practice because it's too serious and that they're in tears at practice at their other sports because it's become too negative. And I'm thinking like, why is that the coach's job to make this this a negative experience for you? Like, aren't we here for you? Isn't it up to you to come to practice and decide what you want to race in and how serious you want to be and how good you want to be? I'm not going to tell you that you can't Um, skip track practice or you're off the team come when you want do what you want do what events you want put in what you want and and I'm I'm there to support you so it's just like it feels like people are not paying attention maybe to these principles or I don't really know what the answer is honestly but and these conversations are important and we need to continue to pursue them but something absolutely needs needs to change because this is completely unacceptable that this is going on in sport to this day So as I mentioned, one of the things that we're seeing is that there's more depth and faster performances, especially amongst our Canadian female athletes, um, our Canadian women runners. We've seen unprecedented numbers of world-class performances from our Canadian women over the last few years. In the last four years alone, 10 Canadian women have broken 235 in the marathon. And of course, that Canadian half marathon record was broken three times in seven weeks not long ago. What do you think we can attribute this to? You know, I think it actually has a lot to do with Athletics Canada now going by world athletics standards. And the fact that, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, we had this notion of both performance on demand and an elevated 
performance to make teams. So I'm, I'm kind of calling back to the 2000s where you needed to have an A plus standard to make a team. I think that really sent a really strong message to our Canadian athletes that we weren't good enough and that you weren't going to make it. So why bother in a way? And, and I mean, honestly, I had some conversations with Athletics Canada staff at the time who would say Canadians aren't going to win medals on the world stage in the middle distance distance events. Just kind of point blank. We're not going to win. So kind of why bother? And that sent, I think, I think that resonated. Like, I think that sent a strong message to a lot of us that we weren't going to be competitive. And then you look at the United States and you start seeing these performances where they're winning medals at Worlds and Olympics. And they're coming from really similar training backgrounds to us in Canada. And a lot of us, of course, went to NCAA schools as well. Um, so I, I think that the fact that we are now following a more standard progression to world championships, like Olympic championships, and sending people on A standards for the experience so they can come back and perform better in the future is motivating and also allows sort of a critical mass of people to go after those performances. And so then instead of the focus of being on the times to achieve to make these teams, it's also becomes a competition between a friendly competition. I mean, we're supportive, but still it's a competition to make the top three because people can have the standard. And I think that is a better focus for our athletes than as it had been in the past, which I think in part came, came from kind of the political structure. So a couple points of explanation here. In the early 2000s, the IAAF, now known as World Athletics, had global A and B qualifying standards for the World Championships and Olympics. These standards were based on an average of the top times in the world for the four to eight years preceding each Games. They were tough. Most countries used the A standard to select their teams. But Athletics Canada created their own standard, what you heard Melindy call the a standard, which was significantly more difficult than the IAAF A standard. This made qualifying for Worlds and Olympics as a Canadian exceedingly challenging, and our small numbers of athletes on those teams reflected this. I believe that in 2008, in events ranging from the 800 to the marathon, Canada sent one woman, and it was Megan Metcalf Wright on a rising star status. And I remember watching those Olympics and just thinking, like, I mean, being pretty heartbroken and thinking, where are where are my role models? I mean, I had you and I had other women who were a couple years ahead of me who were doing amazing things, but they weren't given... The, the representation, they weren't given the visibility at, at the biggest stage in the world. Did you, I, I'm trying to remember, did you hit the Olympic standard that year? Yes. So that is a heartbreaking error for me. And part of the reason, honestly, that I retired in 2012, I had the A standard and I was selectable, but I didn't have Athletics Canada's A plus standard. And because I'd made it in 2004, I wasn't eligible to go as a rising star. Carmen Duma, Deanne Cummins, Hillary Stellingworth, me... At the very least, there were four of us at the very least who had IAAF standards and who were not selected to go. Two weeks before the 08 Olympics, at least eight women were found in violation of doping infractions. And suddenly we actually, the Olympics in Beijing went directly to a semifinal and didn't even have enough participants to run a heat. Um, So... Our performances were not only being based on standards that came from doping and fraction times, right? Because they were like the average of the top eight times over the last four years. And then we had to go faster than those standards 
And then when it came down to it and, and when, when the, the field opened up and when my coach reached out to Athletics Canada to say, like, are you going to send, are you going to, you know, can you send Hillary and Melindy now? We weren't even entered. We weren't even at all, like our names had not even been put forward to the COC in order to make the team. So we couldn't even be put in late. So it was just like the whole situation was just so frustrating because of what was going on doping wise and then having these elevated standards. And then again, that, that feeling that our national team doesn't believe in us. They don't believe we belong there. They don't think that we're good enough to go. And now you see someone like Gabriella, who's, you know, running under four minutes. And it's like, I think we could have done that. I think that, you know, running 402, like Carmen did and I did, and Hillary was right there. We could have been in that range, but it was just, there were the opportunities weren't even there. Well, and I think that's something that maybe some of our listeners won't fully appreciate is that it's not just about the Olympics. It's about all the cascading effect of what comes after. So, so many of the big races where people show up ready to run really fast times and where you actually have opportunities to do things like what Gabriella did, those come on the backs of being an Olympian or having performed at the Olympics. So it's not just about what happens in that in that one competition. It's about the loss of opportunity beyond that. And to your point, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there were so many women um, in that era running under 405, certainly, um, knocking at that four-minute door. And it's interesting to think that the record, Gabriella debut Stafford breaking the Canadian record in the 1500, that record was older than she was. And I actually spoke with Lynn in the fall, Lynn Kanuka-Williams in the fall, um, about watching that go down, because of course that had been her record and she had some wonderful things to say about it. But there are probably many reasons why it took over 30 years for that record to fall. But I, I think you're probably very right that it would have gone, it would potentially have gone down a lot sooner had there been opportunities for women um, at the time that you were running that event. Well, who knows? I mean, not to take anything away from what Gabriella's done because she's been an amazing, but just the opportunities. Melindy says that Athletics Canada dropping their A-plus standard and sending more Canadians to events like the World Champs and Olympics has led to increased longevity in high-level running. She now sees so many more Canadian female runners who, like her, are pursuing multiple careers in the sport. Women like Andrew Sikafian and Natasha and Rachel, etc., who put in um, a lot of years working on their speed on the track, and now they're extending it, and you know, myself now extending it through to endurance events on the roads, where it seemed to me in the past, at least when I was running on the track, there wasn't that same kind of connection to running on the roads. So you talked about the changes in sort of the structure at Athletics Canada and not having that A-plus standard anymore to make teams. What are some of the other positive changes? I mean, you've been in, I know you took a little step away from it, but you've been in and around the sport of track and field for a couple of decades. Are there any other sort of positive major changes that you've seen in our sport in Canada over that time um, that gets you excited about where we're headed? Well, I think having opportunities also to um, train in Canada with groups is really awesome. So you're seeing these kind of like training, formal and informal training groups in Vancouver and Ontario, Quebec, that give people that structure and that kind of team aspect that I think we didn't have the critical mass at a certain point. People would be on their own more. Ironically, I'm on my own in Kelowna for the most part, but, um, but it just kind of creates an energy of itself. And it is really awesome to go to races and have this total huge sense of camaraderie um, and and people to support each other and people I feel like are really genuinely excited by the performances that the Canadians are doing. 
Um, I also think another thing that has changed for the better in, in a lot of ways is social media allows us to have these connections and to share these stories and to share the ups and downs of the sport in a different way than when, when it was not accessible. And in that way, like the internet's been and social media has been a really good thing for the sport. On that note, you know, you've stepped into this, not that you haven't worn this hat in the past, because you certainly have, but you've really stepped into this role of uh, role model and idol for a lot of us who are still trying to do the things that you're doing. Who inspires you? Who gets you excited? Oh, I have so many people that inspire me. <laughs> I mean, I've got an amazing team for one thing with Mike Van Tegum being my coach for so many years and Graham being my husband and my coach now, but I really looked up to Leah Pels growing up and Lynn Kanuka and then the the current crop of women running well now, like each person has a story and has something that you can really draw inspiration from. It's hard to just even pinpoint one person. It's just like the collective energy that people create. You know, you went into Houston thinking that you could run somewhere between 223 and 225. You nailed that. Of course, that was a total redefinition of the record books, given that, you know, only less than a decade ago, it was uncommon for women in Canada to be breaking 230. You've really changed the bar there. What what are some of your ultimate goals? I mean, do you do you have do you daydream about how fast you could run in the marathon or what you think is possible for other Canadian women? You know, what what are some of your your big time goals now that you're back into the professional running scene? Well, I mean, the shoes have definitely helped. So let's just say that we've mar- we moved the marker artificially by a few minutes for sure. So I think running 230 is now like, you know, 232 233 before. That aside, having three women make an Olympic team for the first time to send a full team, I think it's just going to be so fabulous. And really, I hope inspire young track athletes that they can, that they can have long careers and move through the event areas. But at the same time, there's people, there's stories like Lindsay, Tessie and Krista Deshen, et cetera, who came into the sport as, as mature athletes in their early thirties, who also were successful. And I think that's just so awesome that there's so many ways to join the sport um, so I'm really, you know, thrilled to be part of this kind of marathon road running revolution. Thank you so much to Melindy for sharing her story with us this week. And happy birthday to our record holder who celebrated her 40th on Friday. You can catch more great interviews by subscribing to the Shakeout podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Shakeout Podcast. And don't forget to check out our podcast Facebook discussion group where you can interact with myself and co-host Maddie Kelly. Thanks for tuning in. Stay safe and healthy. And we'll talk again soon. Hold up. 